Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Tony Fletcher to discuss his book, All Hopped Up and Ready to Go, Music from the Streets of New York, 1927 to 1977. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we welcome back Tony Fletcher to discuss his book, All Hopped Up and Ready to Go, Music from the Streets of New York, 1927 and 1977. Tony, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Nate. And tell us about the book. This is a very ambitious book, covers a broad period of time, and we're only going to be covering the first, say, 30 years of the book. But tell us about the whole scope of the book before we get started. Sure. We'll, be, we'll do well to cover all of that. I had this uh, wonderfully ambitious idea that I almost came to regret when it came down to writing it, of tracing New York City's musical history. Uh, so many books had been written about separate movements in New York City. So you could pick up a book about Latin music, or you could pick up a book, of course, about disco or punk or hip hop. And even even more recently, some people had been sort of starting to do that whole 1977 section together, but nobody had really joined the dots and and sort of tried to explain how the demographics of New York City, i.e. the uh, arrival of various immigrant groups, the shifts in population, one area becomes more popular than another, people move uptown, downtown, people move into the city, how it launched just musical form after musical form after musical form. And New York City has a claim on just about every relevant musical form of the of the 20th century, most of which they could claim were invented inside the five boroughs. So I went about writing a separate chapter on each of these sort of styles, genres, movements. Uh, it felt like, I have to say, it felt like I was, uh, every time I wrote a chapter, I was writing a new book. But just having the chance to go back over it, because it was published um, a while back, 2009, and having a chance to go back over it with you now, um, has, uh, you know, just rereading it has brought back to mind that I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. The book's still available, so that's important. And people come up and talk to me about it quite often. So it's a delight for me to be able to dip back into it. Excellent. And it's a delight for, you to have, to, for us to have you to discuss it. And you basically had to cut off the first half of the story by starting in 1927. You skip ragtime, the birth of jazz, cakewalks, minstrelsy, vaudeville, Broadway, et cetera, et cetera. But there's so much to cover. Let's dive right into it. One of the things that really fascinated me about this book <clears throat> and that I wanted to get into is because, you know, everybody, obviously, the, the history of American music is so dominated by African-Americans. And, and so much of the story of, of American music is, is the interaction between Anglo and African-Americans and Anglo and African music influences. But the Latin influence, I think, is maybe the, the hidden third of of music in america and and your book really draws it out and a lot of these guys are coming from cuba i've got a bunch of interviews with ned sublet hopefully we'll finish our series where he links cuban music to sub-saharan africa and so what mm -hmm. we think of as latin music in a way is the most african of all our musics even more than african-american music which ned argues tends to be more influenced by the islamic northern parts of africa but let's get into it 1927 a guy named Mario Bowser arrives in New York. Who is he, and why does his short trip to New York matter so much? Well, it was a perfect uh, date, 
with which to launch the story, the perfect year, I should say. Mario Bowser is just a young teenager coming to play. He's uh, he's Cuban, but he's been brought up in an unusual scenario as a dark-skinned Cuban brought up by godparents who couldn't have children of their own. He's received a good education. He's a musical prodigy, so he's coming over to play with an orchestra. You know, orchestras would come on boats and have a residency. And he just landed in New York City at this moment uh, that, that it was the peak of the jazz age. It, the, the city is just booming, absolutely booming. And he gets to see in Harlem that there's an emerging uh, black community, African-American community. And back in Cuba, to be very clear about it, although the Cuba has independence and uh, largely won on the back of an, uh, a, a an essentially dark-skinned army. Uh, there's a caste system, a sort of coloured caste system, uh, much like there is in India uh, to this day. And dark-skinned uh, blacks in Cuba are at the bottom of the pile. And he sees he's got an opportunity in New York City because jazz is happening. And for all that there is segregation, up in Harlem, white people are coming uptown to come to the big venues. And there's a chance to carve out more of your own life. And he vows to come back. And he does come back. And you, I agree with you. Latin music is the unsung third in music. Uh, it's a great word to use, unsung. Uh, I, I agree with you. I also agree that it's probably the most African of forms, which we'll get to. Uh, but partly because Mario Bowser, among many other things, has the audacity to call the group he eventually forms after doing all his, you know, um, towards a duty with other groups. Uh, he calls them the Afro-Cubans. And that was an incredibly brave thing to do. So he put Africa front and center of, um, of the group's name. And Afro-Cuban music essentially is born in New York City. And Mario Bowser is the unsung hero of that movement. Absolutely. And let's talk a little bit about what he saw. Like he claimed to have seen in his brief visit in 1927 that he saw Paul Whiteman's orchestra, he saw Duke Ellington, and he saw mm -hmm. Fletcher Henderson. What was the impact of seeing that kind of jazz on young Mario Bowser, who was a clarinetist at the time? What did he do to change his game in response? Well, one thing he did is he uh, he went back and learned to play trumpet. Um, but I think he just sort of realized that the jazz instrument uh, he that that he'd be more suited for that. Uh, very interesting because he's seeing almost across the spectrum. I would say Fletcher Henderson was the real deal. He is African American. He had held down the residency, I think, at the Cotton Club prior to Duke Ellington, who is considered the most popular of those uh, 1920s, 1930s orchestra. And Paul Whiteman is, um, it's funny about the name, Paul Whiteman is a white man who popularized um, a lot of this uh, jazz music, early sort of swing music, uh, by giving it a very Western orchestral arrangement and was, in, uh, not surprisingly, incredibly successful because ultimately he was the guy that the record companies marketed. But interestingly, Bowser did not have a negative view on Whiteman. He actually thought that what he saw was phenomenal. So he took it all in. He seemed to be able to take all of it in, the commercial end, the real end, and realized that um, his future lay in playing jazz. And uh, he was smart enough to become an, not just an important band leader, but uh, he, he is actually central in the discovery and uh, the, I, I would say, the success of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker as well. I mean, that's as well as his own group, which is ultimately called Machito, Machito's Afro-Cubans after his brother-in-law, who he brought over from Cuba to front uh, the Afro-Cubans. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of music. This is Cab Calloway featuring Dizzy Gillespie and Mario Bowser in the band. And this is Chili Con Conga. A famous Cuban dance that you do with the swing and the shout. Yeah. But when they topped it with chili and romance, this new hullabaloo is what came out your heart. Chili con conga, chili con conga. That's the new song, that's the new song. Yaha, that's a Cuban child. Chili con conga, chili con conga. 
Let's beat the bonga. Let's beat the bonga. Yaha, that's a Cuban jive. First you give it that, then you give it this. Then you dip your hip and try to steal a kiss. You can't miss chili con conga, chili con conga. That's a new songa. Let's kick the conga. Yaha, that's a Cuban jive. And that was the great Cab Calloway featuring a young Dizzy Gillespie who had not yet pulled a knife on his boss and gotten fired, and Mario Bowser doing Chili Con Conga. And, and as you point out in the book, once Bowser's in this group, previously they had done some sort of um, Cuban pastiches, some attempts at kind of the rumba beat. But once Bowser is in the band, suddenly they can do it right, and, and it's very authentic. And one of the things talking to Ned Sublet has shown me is that African-American musicians tended to swing the beat, whereas Afro-Cuban musicians played straight time, although in polyrhythms. And so it was like almost two different languages. And they both both sides of that had a lot to learn to catch up with the other. And so Cuban jazz struggled because few of the players knew how to swing. And American attempts to play Afro-Cuban music struggled because the polyrhythms were so complicated and there was no swing so it's part of the mix and it's something we'll see again and again like especially in the birth of, of rock and roll with little richard you'd have half the band swinging and half the band in straight time and that's one of the things that makes it so powerful but before we leave bowza and his 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 apprenticeship i gotta mention chick webb we've done a couple episodes on chick webb got another one in the can that's about to drop and 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 he was the first guy to hire bowza as a saxophonist who um before he took up the trumpet and i think he took up the trumpet just on short notice for a quick gig and, and astonished everybody but chick webb was definitely a, a big part of the mix there in harlem and you also go into the the nature of the clubs in Harlem and how you had the Cotton Club that was owned by Oni Madden, who's an infamous criminal, later becomes kind of the titan of Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, one of the last uh, uh, Welshmen to be a, a power player in American organized crime. But you also had African-American club owners like Ed Smalls and then this guy, Baron Wilkins, that you mentioned, who's murdered by mobsters in 1925, but his clubs lived on uh, beyond him for several years. And then we also have to mention El Manicero, the peanut fender, which was a big hit uh, for Justo Azpauzu and his Havana Casino Orchestra. And that's actually the band that brought Bowser back to the States, although he quickly um, leaves. But let's talk about Dizzy Gillespie a little bit and how he uh, comes into the story. He's not from New York. He comes from South Carolina. And what was his legacy and how did he interact with these swing bands and how did he and, and Bowser get linked together? Yeah, I mean, you made a lot of great points there, Nate. Thanks for summarizing a lot of what would would would, would take us a long time to uh, to go over. And yes, Chick Webb, extremely important. I've got to say, I went on a massive, you know, I had a massive education writing these first couple of chapters and just loved learning all of this. There was so much history to pack in there. So uh, John uh, John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie, I think is his full name. He picked up the name, you know, along the nickname Dizzy along the way. He, yeah, from South Carolina, very opposite background from Mario Bowser. Uh, he'd had an abusive father. He'd uh, grown up as a tough kid. Uh, he'd learned to defend himself by keeping a knife in his pocket. He had a brother who had moved up to New York City. I think it's worth uh, talking here about the Great Migration that was a long uh, and you know, gradual process of uh, African-Americans moving up from the Jim Crow South towards cities in the north, both for jobs and just less um, racism. Certainly not no racism, not by a long stretch. And that's uh, very much a topic that runs all the way through the book, but 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 less of it, less overtly so, certainly less lynchings, etc. And uh, Dizzy's brother uh, is already up in Harlem waiting tables and uh, Dizzy comes up and basically crashes <laughs> with his brother, uh, goes out basically blowing his horn because he has been smart enough, like despite this difficult upbringing, to learn how to play and uh, so it's very different from a Bowser who's had formal training. He is very, very, very instinctive. And it does not take long for Dizzy to get the chance. I, I, I'd love to have sort of seen film or an interview with the 19, 20 year old Dizzy because he comes across as so 
I guess, cocksure. Um, you know, he'd go out blowing at night, as he calls it, and then apparently he'd bring home a girl, turf his brother out <laughs> onto the streets for the next couple of hours. And uh, his brother, brother's meantime paying for his upkeep. So, I mean, if we want an unsung mentor for Dizzy Gillespie, it's his poor brother. Um, but but clearly he had something. He got invited to blow with bands to sit in with them. I think he got invited to sit in with Chick Webb, and uh, in, which almost indeed, no one got to do. I mean, that was as he says, as he says, nobody got to do that. So he knew he had to be doing something right. That's where he would have met uh, Mario Bowser. And uh, but basically, when Bowser gets the chance to join Cab Calloway, he decides to bring uh, Dizzy along with him when there's when there's an opening for a trumpet player. Uh, so. That's the uh, that's what happens there. But they are both, you know, you made these points about the swing, etc. Bowser's take was that Latinos needed to study more the the form, sort of the form and the structure, and just become like good enough players, organized enough. I mean, almost traditionalized, but they needed that that ethic that was in the the big orchestras in the states, but. His frustration was that the orchestras like Callaway couldn't, you know, just did not have, I guess, what we'd nowadays call the funk. You know, they just didn't have it. And they were playing and increasingly playing to mainstream audiences. So Callaway had a falling out with Gillespie, whether or not he pulled a knife on him, I guess we'll never know. But he certainly got fired. And uh, Bowser, um, Bowser quit as well. And uh, there's so much intersection goes goes on in, in different ways, of course, with jazz, where people just, you know, pick up and join one band for one tour. But Dizzy's role is now that uh, the you, you mentioned the important clubs like Smalls and uh, uh, but equally important were the after hours joints, um, Minton's and Monroe's. And uh, one of those stayed open all hours. The other one closed a bit earlier. But these people like Dizzy started going to these after hours joints to blow after they, um, after their regular performances, say at the Savoy or something. And uh, that's where they really got to experiment in the meantime. Like I say, Bowser brought over his uh, uh, brother-in-law. He brought over his sister and his brother-in-law. Um, sorry, it would have been his wife, wouldn't it? His wife and his brother-in-law. And, um, Machito was a frontman, a percussionist frontman, who with him, they were able to put together their own orchestra that really is the first Afro-Cuban orchestra in the States, not just because of the name, but it just literally is the first. And it's its influence on Afro-Cuban jazz, its role in bebop, and then later, as we'll hopefully get to its role in mambo, is completely un- is you know, unrecognized. Uh, there aren't many acts that can claim to have been responsible for the popularity or indeed the, the actual formation of three different sounds of music, styles of music. And, and Machito's Afro-Cubans can take that credit if anybody would like to give it to them. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit. This is Tanga by Machito and his African Afro-Cubans. by Machito and his Afro-Cubans. And that's one of those songs that was played before. It, there's, there's a big history that happens in this period. Obviously, World War II happens, which in, in creates a shellac shortage. Shellac was a naturally produced material from Southeast Asia that became in short supply when Japan uh, starts invading Indonesia and other places. And what shellac there was was needed by the government for the war effort. Also, there's a strike uh, by the American Federations of Musicians. Frank Perello uh, is fighting a losing war, but bravely against the 
demonetization of musician as a trade because of recording, because of radio. Once upon a time, being a musician, like in the early part of the 20th century, there would be a second rush hour as all the musicians got on the buses and the subways with their instrument cases to go out and play. Because if you wanted to hear music, whether it's uh, uh, you know a quiet little orchestra or a quartet at a, at a fancy restaurant or a full-blown dance band, you had to pay live musicians. This is before you had jukeboxes, before you had discos. And so there's a reason they're fighting this, but the net effect of it for us as music historians is there's this dark age in the middle of recorded music history when these innovations are not recorded. And so what Machido is doing is, is one of those things that's not recorded. And also the transition from swing to bebop is unrecorded. And you talk about these jam sessions and people like Dizzy, are getting together with people like Charlie Christian, Vic Coulson, Don Bias, the great Charlie Parker, of course, uh, Kenny Clark, Thelonious Monk. And they're deliberately experimenting with very technically complicated music and in part to kind of keep the squares out of it. Like what, what had happened with Swing was artists like Duke Ellington and Chick Webb had worked so hard to create this new genre. And then artists, white artists like Benny Goodman jumped in and got most of the credit and most of the money. And even somebody like Benny Goodman, who hired African-American musicians, which was a huge deal, you know, something Paul Whiteman hadn't done. Whiteman would hire legit jazz musicians like Big Speederbeck and Bing Crosby, but no black musicians, although he hired black arrangers. Um, Goodman was actually willing to integrate. But nonetheless, cats like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker were tired of the, the soul getting stolen, basically, and they were determined to advance this music technically and we're just doing things like you know people from Artie Shaw's band would drop in and just completely be lost and nobody was giving them a hand up and and so this 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 whole music evolves in this unrecorded period and one I'm a coulda woulda shoulda guy and when you read about things like Dizzy Gillespie as part of a popular orchestra like Cab Calloway or Charlie Parker playing with Jay McShann, and I've talked on the show many times about the great battles at the Savoy where Chick Webb would battle Duke Ellington or Chick Webb would battle Count Basie or, or battle Benny Goodman in these cutting contests. And Charlie Parker with Jay McShann won one of these cutting contests at the Great Dance Club in Harlem, which is so hard to imagine because we think of Charlie Parker playing this undanceable bebop, and yet there was a period when there seemed to be this sort of three-way merger between swing between the Afro-Cuban music and the emergent bebop, do you think that if things had played out differently, was there national commercial potential in this stuff, or was it always meant to be ahead of its time? As again, you make make many many good points, and you summarize uh, a, you summarize a good few points. I think it's worth noting that. Uh, most musicians, uh, I, I've come around to this way of thinking, despite being sort of a teenage punk rocker, that you kind of need your formal training to be able to unlearn your formal training. And so the reason you've got Charlie Parker playing with Jay McShann or you've got Mario Bowser you know, playing with uh, with you know, the Peanut Vendor Orchestra or you've got Dizzy playing with Cab Calloway is they've got to get work and they've come up through a certain, uh, certain way and they're getting to play with big names and they are good. They can play. But within their playing, if they have that natural creative talent that, to be honest, not too many working musicians have, uh, that is 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 something that's you know a gift. We could argue that it's just a gift. They're unique. They're creative. They want to push the boundaries. They're going to find they can't do it in a conventional group. So that's when they're going to find alternative venues, alternative bands to put together, alternative ways of playing music. So. For Dizzy, uh, they would do that at, at Minton's, which we we reference. And yes, they would apparently go back to Dizzy's place. I can't remember if, it was, if he had his own by now, and uh, practice all hours of of inverting these sort of jazz standards, turning them upside down, finding different melodies. And then if somebody came in from downtown trying to impress at Minton's, they sort of get up, join the song, take it in this totally different direction, and effectively shame the uh, commercial musician off the stage. Um, 
in the process, uh, Dizzy Gillespie was one of the many people who couldn't actually uh, uh, write music, like like literally write it, write it in uh, in manuscript form. And so he would he would scat sing the parts to people, and he sort of came up with the you know, bebop, 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 and that's how the term bebop came along. And so you've got you've got all of those all of those different components going on. There is something I I think I kind of underplayed in the book and I think has been underplayed in general. That union strike that we talk about, the AFM strike during the war and combining with the the shortage on rubber, the shortage of shellac, I actually think that while it was a bad thing for quite a lot of musicians, they suddenly didn't have the opportunity to make records anymore. It was a great opportunity for a lot of minority musicians because as contracts ran out, um, the only people who weren't sort of members of the AFM were like percussionists and, to be honest, ventriloquists and the like. But <laughs> it, it, it did allow it did allow some sort of like, you know, less mainstream artists to get the chance to make records. But what I think specifically was great is that bebop got to incubate itself without going into the studio and either being compromised or second guessed. You know, if you bring out a record early in your career, there's a good chance of getting second guessed. You might not be good, simply good enough at what you're doing. Your idea may not be formed and the reactions that you get knowing that everything is simple, cause and effect karma the reaction that you get will likely impact on your next recording well they they didn't have that um dizzy parker whole bunch of people that you know dizzy was putting together this big group or um, well it started off as a small group and they were down now on 52nd street the sort of nexus had, had moved for the for jazz from 100 from harlem down to 52nd street and um they were able to, you know, the music got popularized locally. People were saying, if you want to see the greatest jazz players that exist, I mean, be ready to not understand it, but it's taking place on 52nd Street. So people had to go seek it out. And interestingly, when Dizzy took his group on the road, uh, it was initially, it was a disaster, like a real disaster. He managed to empty out the venue in uh, L.A. within about three nights. And he came back with kind of tail between his legs and realized that other cities weren't ready for bebop. Uh, but by the time he got to record some of it, the war ended. Um, people moved on a little bit. You know, the, the the rest of the country caught up. And that, to be honest with you, is a central theme of this book, that New York City was always ahead of the game. And I think that actually, I hadn't meant to say this initially, but that little example of bebop is a metaphor for much of the book. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Let's take a break uh, and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about whether or not we live in the best of all possible musical worlds. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And what I meant by that comment is like what you're postulating is essentially that we wouldn't have bebop as we know it. We wouldn't have modern jazz. We wouldn't have jazz as an art music if things hadn't played out the way they played. But we also need to mention some of these uh, transitional bands that feature because Earl Father Hines had a band featuring Billy Eckstein and Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie that never got to record. And then later on, Billy Eckstein had his own orchestra with Dizzy as the musical director. And listen to this lineup of talent that came through this band. Sarah Vaughn on vocals, Art Blakely on drums, the great Dexter Gordon on saxophone, Howard McGee, uh, Ox- Oscar Pettiford, Fats Navarro, the pianist. Uh, this was a combo that Miles Davis saw when they toured St. Louis. and. That was his conversion experience. That's where he first gets his first inkling of this new music. And so, you know, I'm just fascinated, like, by the what ifs here. And what if Billy Eckstein and Father Hines had gotten to record and and Bebop had been introduced to people more gradually? But like you say, this is the world we live in. We don't know what might have happened. And we also should mention there was also a big fight between ASCAP, the Songwriters Union, and and the, the radio industry. ASCAP basically had a lock because they had all the Irving Berlins and Cole Porters and George Gershwins in there, but they didn't have, they excluded deliberately a lot of black songwriters, a lot of Latino songwriters, a lot of country songwriters, and that created opportunity for the radio companies to form BMI, which then becomes an even bigger publisher, a union than ASCAP. And so uh, there was a period of time when there's a lot of public domain songs being played, a lot of Stephen Foster stuff gets resurrected in this period, and also a lot of country songs and a lot of R&B songs and jazz songs start making their way onto the pop charts just because of this ASCAP thing. So a lot of complicated stuff going through this period. And another thing that I think is really important that you mentioned is this move from Harlem, where these big dance halls had had encouraged dancing, you know, and, and if you wanted to play the Savoy, you had to make people dance. They moved down to Midtown to these much smaller clubs where there's no room to dance. And there's also this weird thing with the New York cabaret license where you'd have to pay an enormous amount of taxes if you wanted to have dancers in your clubs. This was a LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia era reform to try to uh, put a chokehold on organized crime. And so New York, oddly enough, for a period becomes kind of an anti-dance city. And that contributes to the emergence of... Um, I wanna, of the, I, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I actually want to just, if you don't mind me interjecting there, uh, that cabaret law was used by Rudy Giuliani to try and stifle nightlife in, what would it be, the 1990s, yeah. 2000s, the early 2000s. I remember myself DJing at bars where the bars got raided just because there was a DJ and people were having a good time and dancing. So, you know, always beware of uh, these laws. Um, I think it was maybe introduced to curb gangsterism and prohibition, but it was it was used as like a hammer to, you know, to attack a very, very small nail. <laughs> there was not a problem. You know, there yeah. was a nail that was already firmly in the wood and people wanted to, you know, the, the politicians just, you often think, man, they want to stop people having fun. I mean, you know, look, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's the point that I want to make there. That that cabaret, that that damn cabaret uh, uh, license uh, took a lot, you know, it, it, it took a long time to get that out of the way. It really, really did. Yeah, the, and the, uh, the it would kind of come and go based on political whim. The disco era obviously flourished in New York, but then in the 90s, and we've talked about this in our hip-hop and our uh, techno-roll series, uh, Giuliani just really cracked down on emergent music in New York using the cabaret law. But let's get back to bebop and the emergence. What happened when they finally did get to record? How did, how did Dizzy and Charlie Parker and others come together, and what kind of records did they cut? And um, so there's there's a there's a number of different sessions and uh, the interesting sort of Machito is uh, sort of central to quite a few of them. 
And uh, so one of those one of those sessions um, produces. Well, gosh, I got to try and try and get this all right, um, because so one of the sessions they have. Um, I, I think we need to reference Norman Norman Grands here. He's a jazz aficionado and he founded Clef Records and he later launches Verve. And if you haven't heard of Clef, you have probably heard of Verve if you're listening to this show. He brought Charlie Parker and Flip Phillips together with Machito's Orchestra, and they recorded half a dozen like really pure cubot cuts. Uh, it's on the album called uh, Machito Jazz with with Flip and Bird, and uh, that is probably I think that's 1947. Uh, so that's a that's a really important record. It's got I believe the No Noises on there, which is a great title for a song, you know, for a jazz track. Mango Mange is on there if I pronounce that right. And uh, then there's a separate session for Machido's Afro-Cubans where they have the these party anthems called Gone City, Bop Champagne, and Mario Bowser uh, composed a song called Q-Bop City. So that's why I called that second chapter Q-Bop City and all that jazz. So you can see that Mario Bowser's also just sort of coming up with the names. And uh, Dizzy Gillespie was um, recorded eight songs for RCA Victor in December 47, and Manteca was his big hit from that. But this sort of came out of playing with the Afro-Cubans at um, John Hammond. If we know John Hammond as a long time A&R man at uh, CBS, I mean, long enough that he was able to sign Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. And he put on these very famous shows at uh, Carnegie Hall. Uh, was it uh, what were they called? From, from Spirituals from to Swing? From Spirituals to Swing, yeah, that's, that's yeah. the one. I, yeah, and uh, Mario Bowser had brought over from um, Cuba this guy Chano Pozo, who's the most African of all the musicians we've yet, you know, we're, we're, we're going to mention here, who was the polyrhythmic guy, who was the conga player, who was um, a lot of people cited him as the best percussionist they ever saw. He made an incredible impact at that uh, at that concert where. Um, the Afro-Cubans played. So uh, the Cubans went in uh, with Dizzy and recorded Cubana B, Cubana Bop. And so that becomes um, an unbelievably, unbelievably important record in um, in the whole development of, of Bebop. So you've literally got there somebody saying Cubana B, Cubana Bop. And it's a showcase for... Uh, for Chano Pozo. And I want to, sorry, just correct myself because there's so much overlap in terms of who's playing with who. That particular recording uh, was the Dizzy Gillespie Orchestra. It wasn't the Afro-Cubans, but it was, it came to the fore because of that uh, Carnegie Hall show where they played together. And let's go ahead and hear Manteca uh, by Dizzy Gillespie, written by Chano Poza. And this this is uh, as close to a hit as Dizzy Gillespie. I guess it was a hit. This, this is Dizzy Gillespie having a hit doing bebop and Afro-Cuban jazz together. Manteca. was Manteca, written by Chano Pozo, performed by Dizzy Gillespie and his orchestra, including Pozo on, on uh, uh, Congos. And one thing I want to ta- talk about before we, we, we leave this section, though, is that the you, you talked about Dizzy's disastrous tours. He toured the South and he toured L.A. And this is he's coming out of New York City, very highly touted. Nationally, the word is this is the new music. This is the hot new jazz. Everybody wants, you know, is curious about it, wants to hear it. They launched what they call the Hep Sations Tour of 1945. And you've got a line that said that the failure of this tour marks the moment that jazz formally ceased to be the music of black social dance. Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, for for sure. And uh, that, that, uh, I mean, that is to reference the fact that people had been going to see jazz music to dance because we've 
started out here talking about everything from Chick Webb at the Savoy to Cab Calloway, uh, Duke Ellington. You know, people were going out to dance. It's your nightclub music. It's the equivalent of the DJ in the modern age. And uh, the Afro-Cubans had dance music for sure. And and I think pretty much everything you played up until now has this sort of dance element to it. And so the shock for the orchestra, uh, sorry, the shock for the audiences who came out to that Hepsations tour was they probably came out to dance. They probably heard what's well, a new form of jazz coming from New York City. And then they found it was this intensely musical, uh, quite at times atonal, very challenging. And I'm not saying categorically that you can't dance to it. I think people can dance to anything if they if they want to. But it was not designed for dancing. It was designed to be listened to and appreciated and certainly dizzy more than anybody involved in, in bebop was really trying to elevate the, uh, he had a a strong sort of African-American sense of what he was doing. He was trying to elevate the musicians, plural, that is standing uh, as being, you know, the most technically proficient, innovative, imaginative uh, musicians that were out there, but it meant that jazz was no longer going to be your guaranteed night out to dance. So people were, were going to need to find another music if they wanted to go out and dance because they weren't going to get it from the new strain of jazz. Yeah, and in much of the country, it's it's Louis Jordan, who ironically also had come out of the Chick Webb band, and, and he becomes known as the father of R&B, although at the time he was seen as jazz, he saw himself as a jazz musician, but because bebop essentially takes the brand name of jazz with it, uh, Louis Jordan then becomes the father of, of rhythm and blues, but in New York City, the music goes in a, the dance music goes in a different direction. I mean, obviously there is R and B in New York and people are dancing, but the scene that really electrifies dancers in New York City in the 1950s is Mambo at the Palladium. Tell us about that, how that happened in this new generation of uh, Noyurican musicians and the Puerto Rican influence that came in uh, around this time. Sure, and uh, that's. Now that's the, the the fifth chapter in um in my book, and it was very difficult with doing the book. It, I mean, scenes do of course overlap somewhat, and I think it's important for me to say that that for all that I've separated uh, genres, styles, whatever you want to call it, into separate chapters, there's a sort of overlap, and uh, a lot of the work that's gone on in the 20s the 30s the 40s sort of with with the with the whole afro-cuban thing comes to fruition in the 1950s uh at at the palladium nightclub in particular with the mambo and this is where machito's uh orchestra uh now gets a sort of second third wave you know they say there's no second acts i mean maybe it's because machido never stopped but they were always been incorporating the uh the you know the, the cuban rhythms and yeah there's a long background about how the mambo comes comes to new york city uh but you've also got now at this point uh two titos you got tito puente who is kind of the household name, who is much more of your kind of Spanish Harlem kid of Puerto Rican um, descent. And uh, he, you know, he grows up there. He's a figurehead there. And he's out playing with more regular orchestras until he gets to sort of break out on his own. But you've also got a much more commercial guy, uh, Tito Rodriguez, who's also Puerto Rican. And uh, his... Uh, he's an amazing dancer. I've seen footage of him dancing. He's break dancing effectively. Uh, he was more like the idol. So you've now got these, uh, obviously, obviously, these aren't the only musicians and they're not necessarily the people who you know, first made the mambo um, a buzzword. But these three orchestras get to dominate the New York City scene. And I have often been asked uh, when I've done you know, interviews around this book, you write about so many different scenes, Tony. What's the one that you most wish you had been part of? Because, as you know, I'm a Brit and the book ends in 77 when I was 13. Um, and my answer is always that that Mambo scene, because at its best, at its heyday, I mean, this just sort of boggles the mind. Those three orchestras would be on the same bill at the Palladium and they would each play 
two one-hour sets. And from the best that I understand it, they would hand off to each other. So let's say Tito Rodriguez opens the night. He's playing an hour, and as he finishes his hour, his his actual rival, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, they were rivals. Tito Prente steps up and takes the mic, and, you know, they the they quick changeover of, of gear, but literally striking up the next band, and then moving on to what, in this case, well, Machito would be the third, and then they each go around and do it again. And uh, it's well known that if you went to the Palladium, you had to be prepared to dance. You did not step foot. You couldn't be somebody like at a modern gig and stand down the front and, and watch the musicians. If you stepped on that dance floor, you were expected to dance. So there is not enough footage of that period. Uh, it seems to me just epic. It's got a lot of good elements to it. I think the rivalry between the two Titos, I'd say Rodriguez is the more hot-headed of the pair. Um, but, uh, he, I, I, I know he would get very upset if his name wasn't top of the bill and had sometimes the Palladium would put Tito Puente first on one side of their, uh, marquee and Tito Rodriguez first on the other side to try and appease them both. Uh, that, that scene just seems like I, I, it's also more integrated than a lot of other scenes we we've talked a lot about the importance of the musicians, but there's a lot of institutionalized racism that's greatly affecting New York City. And, you know, the Mambo, the, the Palladium did have sort of different nights that attracted different crowds. But, hey, I was part of the nightclub scene in New York. And I mean, that's sort of a given. So there'd be a night that it would be, you know, the Italians would go a night that maybe would be more Jewish. Um, and the Jewish role in all of this is extremely important. And then there'd be a night that the Puerto Ricans would really want to go as well. And that that's it at its most mainstream. Obviously, it started from much smaller um, beginnings. It started with a sort of one-off club, a Sunday club, a, a, a little club promoter called Fre Federico Pagani, who is just like all the little club kids I used to know who, uh, well, more than that, he's somebody who can make it happen. But, you know, these, these people who have unbridled energy and will run around New York City putting up flyers and getting things printed and booking acts. And when it doesn't work out the first time, you do it again. And when you outgrow one venue, you find another. And these are also unsung heroes of the scene, the people who put on the parties before something becomes more mainstream. Let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Tito Puente. This is Abaniquito. <laughs> That was Abanaquito by Tito Puente, and that was on George Goldner's Tico 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 record, or on Tico Records. There was a radio show called Tico Tico Tico. Tell us about George Goldner, because he's somebody who comes up in our histories of R&B and history of the Brill Building. One of the most brilliant A&R men in history. He has a great run as, as the Mambo King with Tico Records. Then he's going to go on and discover Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and have a second run uh, as, as an R&B mogul. Then he's going to have a third run partnering with Lieber and Stoller at Redbird Records. But things always tend to end up badly for George Goldner. What's the story with this dude? Yeah, I, I had thought maybe there's a separate book in George Goldner. I thought that a couple of times. You know, the, the Alan Freed story has been told. We know about Morris Levy and George Goldner and Morris Levy are entwined. Morris Levy was the more openly gangland connected uh, Svengali entrepreneur who um, who shows up very, very quickly with the uh, uh, the Mambo movement. Um, I, uh, you know, gets in on the act there. But George Goldner just loved music. Uh, he married a Latino, so his heart was in uh, the Mambo. Um, I've got it down. that He released 18 Tito Puente albums, the first 18 by Tito Puente and the first six by Tito Rodriguez. And yet, if you uh, ask people, I mean, it was a classic independent label selling the records out of the back of his car much of the time. Uh, but if you ask people what George Goldner was known for, if they know him at all, they probably know him for 
uh, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. George Goldner's big problem is certainly not the only one. Uh, you know, we, we didn't really talk about Charlie Parker's drug addiction. And obviously there are temptations galore. And the kind of people who end up in this sort of very fly-by-night music business of New York City and nightclubs are not going to be nine-to-fivers for the most part. The nine-to-fivers are the ones who take it over and sell it to the mainstream. George Goldner was an inveterate gambler. And every time he made a lot of money, he'd just go and lose it at the horse track. And inevitably, he would uh, end up selling the rights to whatever had just made him his money to Morris Levy, who would then sort of top him up with cash again. Uh, Goldner would go off and change music again, go and lose it at the racetrack, and all the rights would end up with Morris Levy. Uh, there's there's a hell of a story there because as you point out, I'm still I'm still writing about George Goldner in the mid '60s with Leader of the Pack uh, on on uh, uh, Libra and Stoller's label. Uh, what a what a character, um, truly what a character. And I don't know that he's an entirely unsung hero. I think people do know his name, uh, but he's certainly the person who who I think without him there would be a lot less recorded evidence of uh, the Afro-Cuban music that, that by the 50s is, is being known under an umbrella term of, of Mambo. And as you point out in the book, he did try to take this music on tour nationally. And despite how danceable it was, it was over the heads of most American dancers at that point in time. And it, and it ends up, you know, having sort of a delayed reaction. And you mentioned the Jewish kids coming out to dance at the Palladium. And so many of these Jewish kids uh, are people like Doc Pomas, Mort Schumann, uh, you know, uh, Carol King, Burt Bacharach, et cetera, et cetera. And this whole Brill building era of the late 50s and 60s is absolutely infused with these mambo rhythms that they learned at the Palladium. So this stuff does get out there. It does make the mass audience, but just not on, on the first go round. And we've skipped a couple of stories. And I want to go back because we, we left out the fate of one of our most important characters. And it's a pretty tragic one. And I'm talking about Chano Pazzo. And yeah. he's a guy who actually came to America in part because he had been shot by his music publisher in Cuba because he found out some of his songs had become hits in America. It storms down there. This is just a bull of a man, just a big, scary, Dizzy Gillespie called him a roughneck. Basically, he gets shot out of Cuba. Then he's with Dizzy, writes Dizzy's hit, Manteca. He's touring the South. Yeah. His Congos get stolen. He goes back to New York. What happened to Chano when he went back to New York City? Sure. And I see parallels a lot of the time with uh, later I, later events, people. Uh, I see some of these figures that are in the New York City music scene. It's a very similar thing to what I did witness sort of personally to do with a lot of hip hop and, and, and rap. And it's people who come up really tough and they've got a talent, they've got something. And uh, maybe or maybe they didn't, you know, uh, do some potentially non-legal work on the side to, to, to finance themselves. But they've learned how to get paid. And it doesn't come with a weekly paycheck with your tax taken off and your Social Security. It often comes by demanding the money from the person who otherwise won't pay you. And it comes from, you know, it comes from having to be tough. And Chano Pozo was a street kid. He's, you know, we talked about Dizzy Gillespie's upbringing, but Chano had it harder and on the streets of uh, Havana. And I think he was shot by his publisher's bodyguard because he went in and roughed the guy up because he was writing these uh, popular, really popular Afro-Cuban records. And I don't think publishing was very well organized at that point. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, Mario Bowser brings him up to, to, to New York City. You're right. He, uh, Dizzy Gillespie takes him on tour. Um, when he's now got a bigger orchestra and they've got this sort of hit behind them that, that people have heard, Cubana B, Cubana Bop. His congas get stolen, I think, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he comes back to Harlem ostensibly to buy another pair. But then he tells friends he's he's going to wait out the rest of the tour because of the racism down south. He's just, he's not willing to stand for it. But he goes and buys himself some marijuana at a local bar 
and he's not happy with the quality of it. So he goes back to the uh, dealer, um, an ex-serviceman who's a numbers runner and kind of connected. And uh, he roughs him up in public. And, you know, this is the this is street life, right? This is street life. If you're a drug dealer, you that can't be seen to happen. You you know, you cannot let that happen. So um, Pozo's. Um, goes inside the bar to have a drink, bad, bad move. Uh, this guy comes back and and there's an altercation and he shoots Pozo dead. And uh, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, obviously took on a certain degree of responsibility and guilt. Um, I think he felt terrible about letting Pozo come back to New York. So he probably knew he was his own worst enemy. And interestingly, for somebody who had lived quite hard and aggressively himself, uh, Dizzy Gillespie then became one of these strict band leaders who imposed fines, um, completely banned any use of any illicit substance, you know, demanded the utmost professionalism. And that may have been in part because he saw what happened to Channel Pozo if you don't enforce that. Um, I've watched, there's a short documentary I've seen, a film like a DVD I've seen on Pozo. It's not brilliant because there's just so little documented video and, and audio, but it's got his relatives. Uh, yeah, Pozo was uh, closely connected to the Yoruba uh, religion, spiritual movement from, from Africa and the god of Santeria, which is uh, uh, slaves in... Yeah, well, slaves slaves in, in, in Cuba did what slaves in America and Jamaica and, and other places have done, which is they sort of converted to Christianity. And often, you know, I mean, you know, we see in the modern day that they can be more Christian than any other uh, any other group of people you might name. But it also gave them a cover to bring in their African religions um, under the sort of guise of Christianity. And so Pozo had a lot of that going on. He had this kind of connection. There were those who said that it was a sort of punishment for not um, for, for lining himself with the uh, Yoruba, but then sort of betraying it. I mean, I think New Yorkers just went, man, you don't rough up a drug, drug dealer in public. It's just, you know, you do that, you're going to have to pay the price. And he would not be the last person to meet that kind of end. Uh, you know, you could bring us on beyond the end of my book and the hip hop wars that got intensely violent for a music that started out as just a party music. So, you know, history does tend to repeat itself, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And we've skipped over some history in the book, the, your chapter three on the Harlem Hip Parade, which covers the evolution of essentially doo-wop out of uh, vocal groups like the Mills Brothers and Ink Spots. You get this explosion of, of vocal groups. And it's interesting to me that uh, African-American music in New York in this period is not dance music. Doo-wop is part of the rock and roll and the R&B movement, but it's it's again listening music. It was street corner music, and people like Clyde McFadden that are coming out of churches uh, and joining Billy Ward and the Dominoes, and later forming the Drifters. Again, uh, they're not competing with the stuff at the Palladium. They're not competing with what Louis Jordan is doing. They're doing their their own style of music, and so I think that that's interesting and not to be left out. And also, we skipped over your chapter on uh, the reemergence of American or the beginning of the American folk song revival is what Alan Lomax called it. And you had people like Josh White, Lead Belly, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, uh, Earl Ives, Aunt Molly Jackson, the Golden Gate Quartet performing in Greenwich Village downtown and forming a scene that's going to have impact on American popular music from, uh, you know, the emergence of Woody. But Guthrie is a popular figure in the 40s, the Weavers in the 50s, on into the Kingston Trio, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary in the 60s. But one thing that I thought was interesting was how integrated that folk scene was initially. Like two of the key artists, Lead Belly and Josh White, were both African-American. And yet the audience was almost all white. Do you, what significance do you read into that? Like, the, and also this tension with Woody Guthrie and his working class ethos, very self-conscious about it, versus people like Pete Seeker, who kind of came from more privileged environments. Yeah, I, it's, you know, this is endlessly fascinating to me, endlessly fascinating. We're covering, obviously, a lot of ground quite quickly, but so does, so does the book. And 
uh, I've mentioned that the 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 situation of races. Uh, I, I've subsequently learned in the last few months, race is actually just a construct. We are we are not of different races. Different races don't exist, but we do have racial prejudice, color prejudice, and uh, the Greenwich Village was one of the the, the havens for non-white people. Maybe the only legitimate. Uh, haven for non-white people outside of their own communities within New York City. So it's important to say, I, I, I have always have a bit of a problem about this because there's a guy, Barney Josephson, who's very important. Uh, he opens Cafe Society as one of the first sort of clubs down in Greenwich Village. And he also introduces uh, Billie Holiday to uh, the songwriter uh, Abel Mirapol, who wrote um, Strange Fruit. And he makes that song you know, the, the, I was going to say popular, but that's to, uh, you know, to, to underplay it. It's an incredibly important song in American music. It should be noted. Billie Holiday wanted nothing to do with it at first because she didn't believe in being political. So you, you're starting to see all kinds of different sort of tensions going on there. But, uh, I do want to make the point that whites were, that when, when, uh, Josephson opened Cafe Society. His intent was to make it the first interracial nightclub in America. And I would argue that the Savoy Ballroom was that many, many, many years beforehand. So his point was more about having a welcoming place in a, you know, in a white area as an interracial club. And that's, that's important because that folk scene, that very left wing, let's be honest and say it's communist uh, folk scene uh, is there. It, it, it's like, absolutely designed to welcome people from everywhere. I, I find it an interesting conversation. I've struggled at times with Pete Seegers, um, who, you know, I live up in the Hudson Valley and he lived up here and was considered, is still considered, you know, he's, he's reverential, uh, up here for all the great work he did with cleaning up the Hudson river and living a very clean, aesthetic, minimal footprint kind of life. But he, he you know, I've had struggles with, um, his associations with Soviet style communism, because he had this group, the Almanac singers that, uh, that, that, that were, I'd liken them to crass. I mean, they were uncompromising in the extreme and, uh, brought out a record, uh, basically an isolationist record, um, right before the Nazis tore up the pact with Soviet, uh, Russia, Soviet, well, the Soviet, uh, union and tore up the pact and invaded, uh, the Soviets, which of course was Hitler's, you know, disastrous move. But only then was Woody Guthrie able to come back to New York city and say, great, now I can actually be against all fascists. Cause I've had this problem with like, I'm against fascists, but you're aligning yourself with, you know, you're like enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. So there's a lot that goes on there. But bottom line, bottom line is that people like, uh, you know, uh, Alan Lomax and Pete Seeger's own father went around America uh, collecting songs and then doing more than that, trying to bring the people who sang those songs into New York City so that they could get some of the recognition that they deserved. Uh, I'm always careful with this book about not trying to give New York City credit where it doesn't deserve. There isn't really anybody who says rock and roll was uh, came out of New York City. However, uh, the vocal rhythm and blues scene was cemented in New York City. And when you follow Clyde McFatter, who you just mentioned, and you listen to the early Domino songs like uh, uh, Do Something to, For Me and um, 60 Minute Man, and then you hear Have Mercy Baby and you realize uh, a money honey by the drifters. You realize that how much of that energetic vocal style came out of the vocal rhythm and blues scene that was in New York City. And, you know, obviously rock and roll was sort of, you know, formed out of a big melting pot in the South, but there are these interweaving influences and New York's role in that shouldn't be uh, downplayed. Definitely not. And Tony, you've done so much to uh, sing the praises of New York City in this wonderful book. The book is all hopped up and ready to go. Music from the streets of New York, 1927 to 1977. And we've just scratched the surface talking about the stuff we've talked about. It, it covers uh, the rise of punk and hip hop and uh, the Brill Building and so much great stuff. So Tony, thanks so much and I hope to have you back soon. Yeah, I would I would love that. And the book is readily available still. And, uh, you know, because it ends in 1977, I don't really think it's aged at all. So, you know, if anybody can't find it, come to me via my website and 
yeah, I'll make sure that they can. But as far as I know, it's still readily available. And thanks so much for having me on again, Nate. Hopefully we'll get to catch up on uh, uh, other chapters down the line. Yes, yes, indeed. I also want to have you back to talk about REM and the Smiths. All right, can't wait. All right, thanks, Tony. Cheers. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ned Sublet continue the Latin Roll miniseries. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.